Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 41, handling conflicts. Let's start to read there. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. And what were they teaching? They said, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Note that word, sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet, prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord who does these things. Things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write, write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of sex strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men went off, were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. Some of your transcripts, or some of your translations, pardon me, will have the verse 34 that says, but Silas decided to remain there. Some translations do not. But, and, and continuing in verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Acts 15 describes two kinds of conflict. One related to doctrine and practice, and the other interpersonal. And there are some important points for us to note about how these conflicts were handled. So in case of the doctrinal difference, whether Gentile believers had to be circumcised in order to be saved, it seems strange that this issue comes up at this point, because at this point, Peter and the others had already been dealing with Gentile converts. But here's the, the issue with doctrinal issues that come up in the church, or here's the reality with doctrinal issues that come up in the church. New conflicts are often about old issues. There's nothing new under the sun. Many of today's controversies and heresies have their origin in heresies that were there even at the time of Jesus. So things that people said and thought, and well, they, it keeps coming back up. So it is prudent for us to pay attention to what these folks did because we learn from the past. And there's nothing, there's no new controversy that we have to say, what's the new method to deal with this controversy? Well, what was the old method? It's probably the same that we can apply today, right? And so we look at that and we look at how these conflicts were handled. And the first point I want to make about it is this, that the apostles appealed to God, his power, and his word. The apostles appealed to God, his power, and his word to address the question of right belief, or doctrine, and right practice. What should you do? How should you behave? And Peter refers to his direct revelation from God 
that God had accepted the Gentiles. He says, I, ha I mean, God spoke to me directly. I saw the vision. I knew and experienced clearly that God has accepted the Gentiles. Peter also describes how the Holy Spirit was given on the Gentiles, poured out upon the Gentiles. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They had the same manifestation of tongues. And Peter says, I, I can tell you that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And Paul and Barnabas describe signs and wonders that are manifest amongst the Gentiles. And all of these are to confirm the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst as a means of saying God has accepted these people. They're not outside. They're not in somehow separate. They're not less than. They're not different from. They have received the same way as the Jewish believers. Right? And then James, when he speaks, he refers to the word of God in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. That section that we read there about God rebuilding and so on, that comes from the prophet Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, and he says, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to accept the Gentiles. So in all these ways, these are the three elements that are a very necessary and powerful means for us today to also determine God's truth and God's heart about a matter. What is God revealing? What is the Holy Spirit's guidance and instruction that is manifest through his power? And what does the scripture say? Right? These are the three questions that we can ask. These are the first questions we should be asking in any kind of conflict, in any kind of disagreement, in any kind of uncertainty about what to do. These are the first kind of questions we should ask. Instead of asking, you know, what is God revealing? What is the Holy Spirit doing and manifesting? And what does the scripture say? What do we typically do in a conflict? We say, how can I prove that I'm right? What can I do to disprove this other person? And who can I get to support me? Right? That's what we do in a conflict. We say, ah, uh, what can I do? How can I show that I'm right? How can I show they're wrong? How can I get somebody else to stand with me? My side. You know, are you with me? You know, come stand with me. Right? When we consider the truths of God first, when we say, you know, what is, what is God saying? What is the word saying? We can then best determine how to resolve a conflict. When we consider the truths of God first, then we approach the difficulty, the disagreement, with humility. We approach the problem with clear thinking. We approach the problem with the wisdom of God. And that's what James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 talks to us too. When you are in these kinds of conflicts, when you have the need, ask God for his wisdom. Ask God for him to speak. Ask God for his authority so that you approach the situation in a completely different way than seeking to be proved right. right? And here's the important thing to understand. Even after you've considered all the truths, the resolution of a conflict is not necessarily for one side or one person to be declared the winner. That's how we think about conflict, right? It's a battle. And let's see who will win, who will prevail, who will come out on top. That's how we think about it. But the way that the, the word talks about this, the resolution of a conflict in this context that we have over here, it is actually an accommodation a concession, 
and it is for the sake of the weaker brother. Let me explain. See, notice what James says. He says, we, that is, the Jewish believers, should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He doesn't say God is making it difficult. God is going to you know, say something about this. He says, we, the Jewish believers, should not make it difficult for these Gentile believers. What he's saying is that since God has already accepted the Gentiles as they are, God has already spoken, revelation, direct. God has already confirmed it through his Holy Spirit. God has already shown it to us through the scriptures. These scriptures have now become illuminated for us, have become revelation for us to show, oh, this is what God meant. This is what he's doing. Then there is no requirement for them to observe the Jewish law. That law that brought us and pointed us to Jesus has now been fulfilled in Jesus. And these Gentile believers that have been accepted in Christ have no longer to, to keep the law in that way. Or at least these aspects of the law. So what he's saying is, we, the Jewish believers, should not be insisting that the law is actually required when God is not saying that. Which brings us to the second point about how to handle a conflict. The apostles emphasized what was of primary importance. They majored on the majors. Right? They, they emphasized what was of primary importance. See, once the question of right doctrine is addressed, once the idea or once the statement is being made by Peter and James and the elders and they're all in agreement, they're saying, look, there is no requirement. It's clear. God has accepted these Gentile believers. We don't need to requ you know, require them to be circumcised. We don't need to do that. There is no doctrinal thing here that would require this. Once that is addressed, then James is addressing the, the question of right practice. What should you do now? How should you behave? And what does he ask them to do? What does he say that the Gentile believers should do? He says to them, we ask you to abstain from food polluted by idols, from the meat of strangled animals, from blood. All of those have to do with kosher dietary laws. We talked about this when we you know, looked at and, and examined these, the vision that Peter had about the, you know, the impure, unclean, all of the animals. And we talked about the fact that these dietary laws were given by God for a specific purpose to the, to the chosen people, to the children of Israel. And so James says to them, to the Gentile believers, we ask that you abstain from food polluted by idols, from meat of strangled animals, from blood, all of which have to do with kosher dietary laws, and from sexual immorality. Now, as we were talking about even last week, particularly in light of the fact that sexual immorality was found, you know, and was maybe even rampant, in Antioch and other Roman cities, the charge about sexual immorality is pretty clear. Pretty straightforward. Don't indulge in any kind of sexual immorality that may be going on around you. But what about the other things? Why make this statement about the kosher laws? Well, so as I was mentioning about from Acts 10 and Peter's vision and so on, we already know that when God said to Peter to kill and eat those impure and unclean animals, what was considered impure and unclean, 
that he was making it clear salvation doesn't come from the observance of these dietary laws. Salvation doesn't come from that. Salvation comes through faith. Salvation comes through grace. Salvation comes through Jesus. And so the mindset of Peter and the Jewish believers about what was impure and unclean had to be transformed. And that's why Peter in Acts 10, he says, God has shown me not to call anyone impure or unclean. Right? And so God transforms their thinking. God affects their mindsets. And if you consider this, in fact, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul explicitly speaks about these kosher dietary laws and these food you know, that's offered to idols and all of these kinds of things. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You think or you, you feel you have a right to eat any kind of food. But don't let that become a stumbling block to the weak believer who would, who would disdain, who would recoil from saying, oh, you shouldn't eat that. Right? For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound, them by your, by, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So why does James say what he said and does? Why does he say abstain from these things? He's asking the Gentile believers to keep kosher for the sake of their Jewish brothers. He's saying, when you participate in a meal together, and it was the common custom of the church to participate in meals together, they would have table fellowship. And when you are in that kind of table fellowship, when you're in, in, you know, sharing a meal in common, James is saying to the Gentile believers, be considerate of your Jewish believers, of your Jewish brothers and sisters. 
Or in other words, please accommodate your brothers for the sake of the gospel, since what you eat is not of primary importance. What is primary, what is of primary importance, is to fellowship together as Jews and Gentiles who are united in the Lord, who are both saved by the grace of God and nothing else. Not by keeping the law. That's what the message is. So, don't be confused about this to say, well, James said that we should not eat meat you know, uh, with blood or whatever. If you eat meat with blood today, you're not going to hell. That's my point. Right? Um, but here's the thing. In the church, we need to focus on what is primary. We need to focus on what is primary. We have often focused on all these different things. And it's easier to do that, right? As we've talked about, about the Pharisees and about all the different ways that laws and regulations and rules would come in, it's much easier to try to follow a rule than to establish intimacy with God and say, God, what are you saying? Lord, what is the Holy Spirit doing? Father, what does the scripture reveal? It's much more easy to just say, what? tell me the rule. Tell me what, the, what, what rule I should obey. Oh, I shouldn't go there? Okay, I shouldn't eat this? Okay, I should sleep here? Okay, fine. I'm good. And then we come to God and say, God, I've kept your law. I have done the right thing. Now, bless me. Now, provide for me. I have no relationship with you, but hey, I've kept the rules. And that's not what the Bible is talking about. We have to know what is primary. What is of primary importance? And see, we want people everywhere to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That they would be justified, made righteous by faith. We want those who have believed in Jesus to then grow in their relationship with him. To mature as disciples, followers of Christ. To be sanctified by the Spirit as they're maturing as disciples. Being transformed daily. Being made more like Jesus. Being transformed into the image of Christ. We want that to take place. We want those maturing disciples to join together in fellowship in observing the ordinances of baptism and communion, to worship together, to pray together, to learn and apply the word of God together, and to serve together. We come together in the local church for that. And we want those in the church, in the local church, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to receive the gifts of the Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, so that we may minister to each other and to everyone that would be in need. And we want to be good stewards of God's resources and faithful laborers in the harvest field. These are the primary things that we want to go after. These are the things that we want to emphasize. These are the ways in which we want to fellowship. But if someone walks in and does not have something else that you have been holding on to, when we focus on these primary areas, then so many of these other secondary areas and so many of these conflicts, it's much easier to put them aside. And that brings us to the interpersonal conflict. Paul and Barnabas have such a sharp dispute. Anyway, I mean, they have, they, I, I told you, note the word, that they have this sharp dispute and debate with these Jewish believers 
who had come to Antioch and were saying you should be circumcised. They have a sharp dispute with them. And then we see this resolution, the way that it takes place. But then this, this portion of scripture is telling us that Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp dispute with each other about whether they should include John Mark in their next missionary journey that they ended up parting ways. And you think about that. And you think, wow. I mean, that must have been some fight. I, I don't know if they yelled at each other, but sharp dispute sounds like it. You know, I mean, and, and then it, how do you, how should we understand this kind of an intense mission altering disagreement? Well, here's the next thing that I want you to understand. The apostles were not always right. The apostles were not always right in the way that they handled conflict. And guess what? We are not always right in the way that we handle conflict. The most readily available evidence of these kinds of incorrect decisions that are made in the church and for us individually can be found in the incredible number of doctrinal differences, church splits, leadership struggles, all in the same body of Christ. And in, in individual relationships and so on, all you have to see is broken relationships, broken marriages, family divisions, and unforgiveness amongst those who call on the name of the Lord. It's very clear we don't handle conflict correctly. We don't handle conflict well. What has to change? No matter how many times we've been right in the past, we have to admit when we are wrong. Now, Paul and Barnabas were an incredible team. I mean, they're doing things that, I mean, when the Bible says that extraordinary things were happening, that's, that's something, right? Extraordinary things were happening. I'm like, wow. You know, if it mentions all these other things as ordinary and then says extraordinary things were happening, Paul and Barnabas were an incredible team. They were doing things that, I mean, you know, we can only imagine today, but it's just fantastic stuff. They were both commissioned by God, full of the Holy Spirit, and used mightily by God. And after all that they had been through together, you wouldn't expect anything would separate them. And then you think about relationships, and you think about churches, and you think about places that you know about, and you think, oh, things are going so well. Oh, it's great. And then the next week, next month, next year, you hear about some conflict, some particular issue, some way in which there's a break, and you go, really? Those people? How did that happen? You know why? Because personal differences, preferences, assumptions, judgments, related to the same set of events and to the same people. They're both talking about John Mark. Paul's not talking about, you know, somebody who was there in Jerusalem and Barnabas is talking about something, somebody in Antioch and they had a sharp dispute and disagreement. They're talking about John Mark, the same person. Same set of events that they went through together. And they have such a sharp disagreement because there was personal difference, personal assumption, personal judgment taking place. And it brought up 
such sharp dispute that they fought and quarreled because of the desires that are battling in them. One wants this, the other wants the other, something else. They didn't seek God. There's no record here that they went to prayer. They didn't say, oh, we're having a sharp dispute, let's go pray. They didn't say, God, Holy Spirit, what should we do here? They didn't say, what is the scripture that, that applies? And they did not accommodate each other or make any concessions. They didn't say, you know, all right, let's, let's adjust, let's try, let's bring him back, you know, let's see what happens. They didn't do any of that. They just parted ways. But here's, here's where the long-suffering, transforming, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit affects the life of a child of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, it seems to suggest that Paul and Barnabas ministered together again. It's not absolutely clear from there, but it seems to suggest that. But even if that reference isn't as clear about Barnabas, what is clear is that Paul and John Mark did minister together again. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, and in Philemon, verse 24, Paul refers to John Mark being with him. Paul refers to John Mark working with him. Paul refers to John Mark being helpful in the ministry. Paul refers to having John Mark come back to join him quickly. And it's very clear that God has worked in Paul to change his mind about what he thought about John Mark. Whatever the reason was that that, that disagreement took place, whatever the way in which he felt John Mark had deserted him and he couldn't be trusted or whatever it was, at this point in time, or later in his ministry, he clearly changes that, receives John Mark, and John Mark is a big help to him. It's very easy to get into interpersonal conflicts. It's not as easy to resolve them. Forgiveness, repentance, and being willing to admit mistakes becomes vitally important. So this morning, I, I'm not going through detailed steps on how to resolve conflicts. Right? This, is, this title was not conflict resolution. You know, it was how to handle conflicts, how to think about them, how to even approach a conflict. Because when you want to be a conflict resolver, a peacemaker, there's a whole lot more that comes into play. Humility, communication, mediation if it's necessary, all of that are factors. But this morning, what I really want you to do is to consider this and to think differently about conflicts and to respond by turning to God to handle our conflicts. Many times we try to handle our conflicts in our own wisdom, in our own strength, in our own word. We try to persuade. We try to convince. We try to stalk over the other person. I do it all the time. I'm constantly telling Jizzy why I'm right. right? Because, and it's easy to do that. It's easy to do that. Because it's much easier to try to 
get your word over the other person. But the Lord is not asking us to do that. He's saying, you turn to me. You shut your mouth. You look to me. You ask me to reveal what is true and right. You ask me to let the Holy Spirit work in this situation and manifest his power. And you search the scriptures. You go search the scriptures because there is something in the scripture that applies to this situation. And then you be willing to make any kind of concession. You be willing to say, you know what, let's do it this way. Not, see, I was right. I was right. No. Be willing to say, no, Lord, you have your way. You work. You do this. We respond by saying, God, you need to move. You need to act. I turn to you. And I would encourage you, I would challenge you, and this, I want to spend a minute here, that you apply by asking God for his help to resolve your conflict. I don't know what your conflict is. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with your child. Maybe it's with a sibling. Maybe it's with some family member. Maybe it's with your neighbor. They always put their dogs, their dogs run through your yard. You know? Maybe it is with a colleague at work. Maybe it is with somebody you don't even know. You just, <clears throat> I disagree with this person. What is it that you need to turn to the Lord with or for? What do you need to ask the Lord to have his way in? What do you need to go to the Lord and say, Lord God, this is the person that you have brought to mind. You know, even as we've talked about forgiveness, we said you have to ask the Lord, Lord, who do I need to forgive? Who is it that needs to be this target of forgiveness on my, from me? Similarly, I'm saying to you this morning, you need to ask the Lord, Lord, who is it that there is a conflict that I've been having? Right? It could be a doctrinal difference. It could be an interpersonal conflict. How do I go to this person and resolve this situation? And I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm not saying it'll happen right away. I'm not saying that you know, all the, the steps to take will be very clear right, right off. But I am saying to you, start to take this in prayer to the Lord. So this morning, again, every single time we want to apply the word of God. We want to say, Lord, how, do I, how does this word come alive in me? And so as we close, as we pray, I want to just spend a few minutes just being silent before the Lord. And I want you to ask God, Lord God, who do I need to turn to? What conflict do I need to address? And sometimes, you know, it may be a conflict in your own mind with yourself. You are not sure what you should believe. You're in doubt and uncertainty, confusion. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Where should I go this way? Should I not go that way? And it has, been, it, it has created this turmoil in you. And you need the Lord to step in, to calm the waters, to calm the storm of the conflict that may be raging within you. But for others, you know, you know very clearly, or the Lord can speak very clearly to you, oh, this is the conflict with this person, within this situation, for this circumstance. Maybe it's going, been going on for years. Pray. Let's ask the Lord to intervene. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, your word never just tells us what should be, what it ought to be, what the ideal is, and then leaves it. I thank you that your word gives us examples of what reality was like, of mighty men of God who argued, who got into disputes, who disagreed, who made mistakes. I thank you, Lord, that that is actually encouraging for us because it tells us that we, when we make mistakes, can come to you, can ask you for help, can ask you to intervene. I thank you, Lord, that your word doesn't just tell us how to go about doing something in the old. It gives us everything that we need to do in the present, for the future, for every person, with every person. And I thank you, Lord, that that brings us life. So I pray, Father, this morning, that as we seek to apply your word, that you will enable us, Lord, to be led by the Holy Spirit to know how and where and when and with whom we need to resolve these conflicts. Father, we pray that we will be diligent to understand, to learn what are the practical steps that we can take. But most importantly, this morning, we pray that our hearts would be changed. That look, that Lord, we would look to you so that we can handle our conflicts according to you, your truth, your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.